Welcome to CEO to Rainmaker, the Inland Empire's best small business podcast. The show's goals are to educate, motivate, and inspire today's business owners, leading to an increase in their executive skills, profits, and length of time in business. And now your host, Gene Valdez. Good morning, devoted listeners. You know, most business owners want to scale their operation to grow their business, but it's a tricky proposition fraught with one obstacle after another. I am very, very pleased to have as a guest today, Mr. Bill Donahoe, who has walked on the coals of fire and has a fascinating story to share with you. As an entrepreneur, Bill co-founded the Gibson Group, an international industrial paper dealer. His company ended up at number seven in 1986 on Inc. Magazine's list of the 500 fastest growing companies in America. And get this, he had a growth rate of 10,000% in five years. I can't even wrap my head around that number. How did he do that? Well, we're going to find out. So after he climbed that mountain as an entrepreneur, he decided to embark on a second career. And he hung up his entrepreneur cleats and decided to become a business lecturer, which he has done for over 20 years at the universities of Cal State San Bernardino and Cal State Long Beach, where he continues to teach entrepreneurship and management courses. When I was a young whippersnapper, desirous of growing my own business, I wish I would have had the opportunity to speak with Bill and maybe take a few of his classes because he had done what I aspired to do. And I really believe that, um, you know, the people that have done what you're, what you're seeking, they're the ones with the most credibility. So let's bring out Bill. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gene. Do you mind if I just ask you a few questions, Bill, and then we can, you know, let's just, we can add a little bit, but, at what age, how, and why did you start the Gibson Group? To start to get, what was the word? The Gibson Group, your company. Oh, I had been in business uh, with some large companies and had uh, uh, been in a managerial position with uh, IBM and uh, with uh, a division of ADP, among others. And I was finding that that was not giving me the satisfaction that I need. I had resisted for a long time going into the paper business, which had been a business my father had been in since he was about 16 years old. Really? 16? He uh, just was a guy who said, I want to work. He didn't go to college because he wanted to get into, into the business world. Okay. Was this in California or was this, this a different state? It was in Ohio. Okay. Ohio. The Buckeye State. Yeah. Okay. And I could tell you a lot of stories about uh, his early life, but uh, he was very successful with that. And then uh, came a cropper later on in his life where uh, he uh, ended up uh, getting into uh, financial difficulty with it. And this is an opportunity for us to start over again. Uh, and it involved three people, my brother and myself and my father. He was okay. the, the uh, real uh, charger. But both uh, my brother and I are reasonably competent uh, young people, and so we were willing to work hard. And that's one of the things that you got to do is be willing to put everything into your business. 
So how old were you at this time when you were now going to be a co-owner of a company? Let's see. I was uh, right about 40. 40. Okay. Okay. And it was was privately owned. You used your own capital. Uh, All of $600. (laughs) $600. (laughs) And that was divided among the three of us at $200 a piece. We would have come in with $500, but that didn't, uh, the arithmetic didn't work out as well. All right. So you bootstrapped that sucker and you said, okay, Deb, and you and your brother said, okay, let's get them. That's just about it. Okay. We had uh, some contacts in the industry and we were able to, to work those around. Initially, we had to do straight commission work because nobody would give us any credit for with yeah. our $600 as the, uh, the fallback that they'd have to, to look at if they wanted to collect money from us. Now, that is amazing. So how did you grow so fast? With such a small level of capital. There was a trick in it. Okay. In our first first period uh, of work, the first year, we did all commission work. And so the only thing that came in was the small commissions that you have in selling industrial grades of paper. Okay. On on a $10,000 order, for example, you might make uh, $400. Okay. So once we got enough credibility with our company in the industry, we had a very good, uh, very fortunate thing in that uh, Canada was in the process of getting American companies out of Canada. So, you know, the Gulf Oil of Canada, and there was a, uh, in this case, an international paper company. It was Canadian International Paper. And once they had decided to kick these companies out, the American companies, of course, sold their interest to uh, a, a Canadian company instead. In our case, we were doing some work with Canadian International Paper, and uh, they'd been bought by the Canadian uh, National Railway Company. And they had mills, producing mills, just north of New England. And they'd never had an opportunity to sell in New England because the parent company said, we're not going to let you foreigners, the Canadian companies, come into the U.S. So all of a sudden, when they... uh, got uh, divested by international paper, it created an opportunity for them to sell in the U.S. And we had some knowledge of customers up in that area. And uh, so they worked with us and gave us some product to sell. In that second year of operations, what they did was uh, give us, extend us some credit. And of course, if you sell a $10,000 item where you are now a dealer, you bought it for $10,000 and you sell it for 10,500, you get an awful lot of sales with relatively small gross margin. And that was the key for us, was the ability to grow very rapidly by switching from commission when we'd earned the right to do it, to being a dealer. And you were getting terms from your vendors. That was the second piece. Okay. Okay. All right. So now I read some of your notes, you and your brother and your father for as long as he lived, I guess. You built it to an $80 million company? Yeah. Can you? Did you shake your head and said, how did we do this from scratch to $80 million? Well, again, you have to look at the um, relationship we had with the Canadian company. They, that was uh, the key then, huh? That was the key. What could you share with my audience as one of the more valuable lessons that you and your brother went through in terms of growing a company? 
considering today's environment, what message would you send to a young entrepreneur that wants to grow? Well, I, I think uh, one thing that's important is you always got to ask your vendors for terms. Okay. Yeah. Whether it's net 30 or net 60 or net 90 or dating or whatever it is. Yeah, I think we're going to be going through a period here where our economy is going to be slowing down. You know, a lot of stuff you see says that. And that's the time to go ask for those extended terms. If you've got a small business and you normally are 30 days, go to the vendor and say, hey, look, we're going to grow and we want to grow with you. have you grow with us. So can you give us 60 days? Right. And uh, if they do it, man, that just creates a lot of available cash for you because you charge your customers for 30 days. You don't have to pay for 60. You've got an extra 30 days uh, of cash laying around there. Sure. sure. Now, would you pursue a single vendor relationship for those extended terms? Well, or you wouldn't play the field. We would play the field, but we had the uh, one firm in Canada was the most generous. Right. And volume speaks loudly. The more you buy from a vendor, the more apt they're likely to want to give into your terms, if you will. Well, you know, it's better for the company, the uh, manufacturing company or supplier company to be moving product than to sit there with uh, uh, inventories or to sit there with idle machinery on which you can't run any product. So, you know, it's a little give and take. And what's the worst thing the guy can do to you? Tell you no. Yeah, that's true. So before I shift into your transition to a um, a professor of business, let me just ask you one more couple of things. So one of the keys to your growth was the your ability to get vendor credit. Was yes. there any other tips that fueled your growth that you could share? And what might they be? What were some valuable lessons that you learned during that period when you're ramping up your business? Well, there were some, some things I would do differently and uh, what I should have done, what could have made it much more easy for us to get where to where we were. And what was that? To be in the customer's face all the time. The president of that company is the best salesman. And uh, we had three of us that were the best salesmen. We had some other people in the uh, doing the office support work. But as a owner or president, you've got to be out in the field. You're the number one salesman. Nobody loves your company as much as you do, and nobody can uh, present it effectively to the customer in the way you can. And, this, this, and then the second thing is you've got to be responsive. In that paper field, one of the things that happens is that you may all of a sudden get a call from a customer, and for some reason he couldn't get the order, he the material that he wanted. And he may call, give me a quote on this. You got to be there with that quote. I need some samples of the paper. You got to be able to send him out samples the same day. If you don't respond quickly, you don't get that order. All right. So, Bill, let me let me play the, the devil's advocate. Let's say I'm a young entrepreneur and I've got all this technology at my disposal. I can text. I can email. I can use LinkedIn. I can do all this stuff. But I believe, I agree with you, despite the technology, the magic happens when you meet face-to-face -face with a potential prospect or customer. But a lot of the young people, they don't believe that. They say, that's old school. I'll just send them a text. But there's no 
communication or chemistry there. What's your thought on that? You got to be out in the customer's office. And you know what happens? A lot of times if you are competing against other people that have a similar product, which we were, the guy that gets the order is a fellow who's sitting there in the de- in the uh, uh, president's office at the time he's ready to go. Okay. So you're old school like I am. I believe in that. I think technology is important, but, and you can attest to this, there's just so much of um, of our entrepreneurs today want to rely on technology in terms of communication. And for many people, it just doesn't work. Do you think that you would have been successful if you were emailing, texting, if that technology was available when you were doing it? No, it would not. And I know if I had been more attentive, that we would have done more. So okay. I, I did not hit the levels that today I'd say are required. Okay. So, so now I'm going to shift gears. So you, as I've said before, you climbed the mountain of entrepreneurship. You, um, you grew the company. And now you decided, well, I think I'd like to teach what I learned. What was your thought process about getting into the teaching business? Why well, did you do that? Well, first of all, your audience can't see it, but I got a lot of books behind me in, in my office at you, and you'd commented on that. I've always had a thirst for knowledge, and over the years, I've accumulated a tremendous amount of practical knowledge because I've lived through it. And yes. I made the decision. I started. I really started teaching when I was 65. Really? Yeah, wow. 62, I guess, was really the first class I had. So, But I had so much knowledge, and I, I want to get it out and have somebody be able to use it before I die. So I am now 81 and still teaching. And I still have some energy left and will keep on going as long as my uh, body will allow me. So you just wanted to give back what you learned. It yes. wasn't a it wasn't a monetary thing. I mean, of course, you got paid to be a professor, but you wanted to share the the, the lessons that you learned, the lessons and information, and uh, show people how to do it. Show them some of the things that they're going to have to do that they may not want to do, like right. being in front of the customer all the time. Right, 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 right. And no one can question your credentials because you, what you're preaching is you went through it. Uh, yes, I have uh, scars I can show. <laughs> I remember I once went to a seminar. I like to call it my Holiday Inn story. And uh, this guy was up there and he was saying, you got to do this about your business. And you got to do that. You gotta, and then I, I met him after the seminar and I said, uh, sir, that was great. Have you ever owned your own business? He goes, no. I go, and then I said to myself, what am I doing here listening to this guy who hasn't done what he says people should do, right? Yeah. You've done what you're sharing and what people can do. And no one can say, well, what do you know about it, Bill? You're just a, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So so what do you teach now at um, Cal State San Bernardino and Cal State Long Beach? What courses do you teach? Well, right now I'm teaching a class in operations management at Long Beach. Okay. And this is all MBA students. Okay. They don't know anything. <laughs> and there's some, some really great coaches. What's that? But they think they do. I, they, well, this is true. But we'll uh, sandpaper them a little bit and uh, get down to where, where they can really feel what it is they have to do. 
So, you know, in an entrepreneur class, whether it's undergrad or graduate, one of the first things I say, you got to get the right tools. And that includes a, a a bucket, a mop, a plumber's friend, and some cleaning compound, because you're going to have to be cleaning the toilets in your company when you get this thing started. Nobody else is going to do it. That's a great story. <laughs> and do they listen to you or do they just roll their eyes? Well, it doesn't make any difference because that's what's going to happen, Joe. So that at least they'll be able to come back and say, yeah, I remember he said something about that. Do you ever have any students that come back and say, you know, Hey, Professor Bill, thanks so much. I learned so much in your class, and now I'm doing this, and it's a successful company, and I kind of owe a lot of it to you. Well, I don't know that they say the last part about owing a lot to me, but I have had people come back, and uh, I really love the students I had, I've had, and uh, I've tried to keep contact with a lot of them. Uh, and this probably the most exciting thing I've ever done is being able to work with young people and spill out some of the things that I've learned over the years. But in general, most of them do listen, all kidding aside. I mean, yeah. they have to respect what you're, what you're talking about. Yes. Yes, they do. And they may be, they may be scratching their head and saying, why, why is he saying this? But uh, as we go through the course, we try and challenge, challenge them as to why they do need to to know that they're going to have to be out in the field, but they're also going to have to be working at night to keep the office clean. So I'm under the firm belief that in order to be a successful entrepreneur, you don't need an advanced college degree. And speaking for my audience, okay, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to do that. Or I'm, I'm not the college type or I'm, I'm just a hard worker with passion in my belly. Where's the fine line between being street smart and academically smart, in your opinion, Bill? Academically smart, you probably are not willing to clean the office up after hours. Exactly. You feel that you don't have to uh, get your hands dirty. The street smart people are uh, very good with, uh, with doing not about it or talking about it, but actually doing. I was reading an article uh, about the Inc. 500. There's a, a, a professor that uh, did some studies on this. And he said there was one guy that started his Inc. 500 company. And it's a great honor, I think, to be on that list. Today, it's an Inc. 5000. But sure. uh, this guy had started his business with a $50 check that bounced. <laughs> Another fellow said that uh, one of the things he found is one of the best people he ever had was a guy who was working painting uh, street numbers on uh, the streets. You know, you go to a householder and say, look, I can put your street number out there on the curb for you. And uh, he brought him into the company. He had had no uh, educational experience uh, of anything much beyond high school. And yet he was the greatest guy in the company. He was willing to work hard, willing to learn. So we're getting close to running out of time, but I want to ask you this question. So as you're doing your lectures and you're sharing your wisdom with your students today, Mm -hmm. uh, I would suspect that many of them are going to enter or want to enter the ranks of entrepreneurship. Not all of them. Some may just want to get a job. Some may work for a nonprofit. Who knows? 
But those that are taking your classes specifically because they believe it's part of their learning curve to be their own boss, to start their own company, what is your assessment of them? What do, what do you, other than what you already told me, is there anything else that you, the message that you try and get across to them? Well, one of the things is don't be afraid of failure. Okay, that's a good one. I love that. The great Bambino, Babe Ruth, who held that uh, home run record for, what, over 30, 30 plus years? Yeah, wow. till Hank Aaron broke the record, yes. Yeah. Uh, he was also had the record for the most strikeouts. And uh, what you got to do is if you strike out, get dust, dust yourself off, get back up, and go back and take another at-bat. So don't be afraid of failure. Up in Silicon Valley, one of the things that the venture capitalists look for and the people they sponsor or, or uh, fund are people that have had a failure. Because mm -hmm. they know that those guys know how to do the business. They're not going to fail twice. They just didn't have the right information when they went, went at it the first time. So exactly. It, and when you do fail, which you will at some point if you are an entrepreneur, it may be, we hope it's a small failure, but it will happen. Uh, you can't uh, let that get you down. You got to get back up and go back, get back up at bat again. Yeah. And, and I am, um, I'm of the belief that for those that, that um, maybe are working at a job now and they have a side gig and they say, you know what? I really want to start my own business. They don't really understand how difficult it's going to be until they're in the saddle. And then they go, holy, you know what? Yes. But as I'm reading through what you're saying is that if you're going to do it, expect failure because that's the greatest teacher. Right. And I would also say, as you're starting in your business, set some, some milestones. I need to be at this point in six months. I need to be at this point in nine months. And if you're not hitting that six months, you probably had put together the wrong plan to get started. And if you're not hitting that number at the end of six months, get out of it before it uh, destroys your financial position. Got it. That's excellent. Well, Bill, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I do have your contact information. And if it's okay with you, if there's anybody of my listeners out there that would like to get a hold of you or drop you a line, I'll put your contact information in the show notes. And I do appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you want to say as a final comment or have we covered it all? Well, yes, there is one thing here. I, I would uh, accept phone calls from anybody that wants to call me. You've got my phone number. But what they should do is text me first. Uh, let's okay. see. Three, six, nine. I've already had nine spam calls this morning, so I don't really listen to them. But if somebody sends me a text, uh, with their name and number, I'll get back to them and I'll, I'll give them as much time as they want. That's very kind of you, Bill. And uh, listen, I thank you very much for coming on board. And again, uh, as I said earlier, I wish that I could have uh, been there. I wish I knew you when I was trying to grow my business and just say, hey, Bill, tell me the straight skinny. What, what am I getting myself into? What do these alligators look like? And you would have... Uh, I think you would have told me the truth. Ought to be young again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it so much. All right. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
All right, everyone. That was that was a very, very uh, interesting show, in, in my opinion. Mr. Donahoe is a expert on what he teaches, and it's all about education. If you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to increase your skill set, no matter how you do it. But you got to keep moving that executive IQ arrow up. So with that, I will see you in a couple of weeks. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. This has been CEO to Rainmaker with Gene Valdez. To find out more, like us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you have questions, email the show. Find that link and others in the show notes. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.